Thank you, everybody. Good morning. Since you have with me, I'm about to turn to the book of Mark. Book of Mark. You know, like, uh, I'm so thankful for Sunbury City Church and their heart for church planning. Uh, as I've mentioned before, we're going through the book of Mark when I'm able to open up God's Word with you to, in preparation for the Seals Grove Church Plant. Uh, so you are the first ones to hear uh, this message. You're the guinea pigs, so all feedback is welcome, but please be gentle. Uh, but as long as we proclaim God, the, the gospel, and proclaim Jesus Christ, uh, amen. <laughs> but we'll be in Mark chapter 1 this morning, verses 21 to 34. Uh, while you're there, I want to give you a little bit of history. Uh, there's this person. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. That name might sound familiar. I see a few heads nodding. She was a watchmaker along with her father in a shop right outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, Corey, she loved her job as a watchmaker. She, she had many skills and knowledge of fixing a watch. Uh, but interestingly, Corey and her father's shop was much more than a business where you would go and get a battery replaced for your watch. To know a little bit of history in the Netherlands in the 1940s, specifically May 1940, in just a swift seven-day expedition, Nazi Germany would take full control, power, having the authority over the Netherlands, adding to the Chancellor's Adolf Hitler's collection of territory. So Nazi Germany, when they began to seize control, they specifically began to enact their authority over the persecution of the Jews. So Corey and her family saw this as an issue. So what they did, they took this watch shop and kind of made it into this hidden uh, place for resistant work, where Corey would use this watchmaker shop as a place to meet resistant workers. To meet people who would be willing to supply rations and food for the six Jews that the Boone family would be hiding in their home. Well, fast forward a few years. It was a cold winter night on February 28th. And actually, the Boone family was hosting a prayer night in their living room with about 30 other people. And they're praying for Europe and what was happening. And then out of the silence of their prayers, they begin to hear a loud banging on the door and some shouting. And they heard a demand to let them come inside. And as they get to the door, they were standing face to face with the Nazi secret police, the Gestapo. The, the, the Gestapo got a tip that the Boone family was hiding Jews in their home. Well, that evening, 30 people were arrested and then scattered to different prisons and concentration camps throughout Europe. Corey, she will actually be sent to a concentration camp called Ravensburg, where she'll be there for about nine months, and she will eventually be let go. And then she will travel all the way back to the Netherlands to see the remainder of her surviving family members. I tell you that story about Corey because it raises a very interesting question. Although we do see quite the bravery in the Boone family, 
question that I would like to ask this morning, is that what real authority is? The authority that Nazi Germany had as a whole over a lot of Europe in the 30s and 40s. Because what we see as we read throughout the course of history, we see many men and women rise to power. And they have this authority. But when they have this authority, they see it as themselves to build their own kingdom despite the cost of others. But is that really what true authority is? To instill fear in the lives of many. Well, in our passage this morning, what we'll see is that Jesus, in the most paradox way, will be a king with all authority. All the authority from heaven and all the authority on earth. But instead of instilling fear as if he is some kind of dictator, Jesus comes with a heart of compassion. For he will be a king who will serve, love, and care, and then ultimately lay down his life for you and me. So the main point that we'll see this morning will be this. Jesus has a cosmic authority that we should joyfully Submit to. Jesus has a cosmic authority that we should joyfully submit to. So with that being said, I just want to invite you to stand with me as we read Mark 1, 21 to 34. And we stand this morning to hear from the word of the Lord, for this is what God has spoken to us. So Mark 1, 21 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord, church. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. They obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Now Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her. She began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. All God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, as we see, we're in the book of Mark. And really the central theme of why we're in Mark is to discover one reality. That Jesus is the true king. That Jesus is the king that should reign over our hearts, 
mind, and soul. And everything about our lives should point to Jesus and his kingship. But the reality is, we know that's not so easy. Because we are sinners. We are fallen people. We are constantly at battle with ourselves. Because what our sin is telling us is that we can be our own king, that we can be our own queen, that we don't need someone else's authority, that we just need your own authority. Then Jesus comes into the picture and says, no, 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 you need my authority. And that's what Mark is doing for us. So actually, last time we were in the book of Mark, we got this scene. Jesus entered into the picture. He just came out of the wilderness. He found four fishermen. And he says one major truth. In Mark 1, verse 15, he says, The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. So he takes these four fishermen, and he's like, all right, let's do it. The kingdom of God is here. So now all the preliminaries are over. Jesus has his four fishermen. He has the message. He has his kingship, and he's ready to tell the entire world that the Messiah King is here. So now as we get started in our passage this morning, just like every king has some kind of authority, Jesus, in the most amazing way, is going to display three elements, three pieces of authority. And, and these elements we'll see all through the book of Mark. But for our passage this morning, we'll see all three. So Jesus will display authority. I'll go ahead and tell you the three. He'll have authority over in words when he teaches. Jesus has authority over demons. And then we'll see Jesus has authority over sickness. All three elements point to his authority of him being our king. So let's look at that this morning. Point one, an unmatched authority. An unmatched authority. So as I was just saying, the, all the preliminaries are done. Jesus has been baptized, he's in the wilderness, and he has his four fishermen with him. And now he's ready to show his ministry to the world that he is the unmatched authority as a king. So look at verse 21 with me. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. So we have Jesus, he's now entered into a synagogue in Capernaum with four fishermen. Uh, all the Sabbath is the time where the Jews will come and gather in the synagogue. It's just a meeting place. And that they will hear different rabbis and scribes just expound on the Old Testament scriptures. Very similar, maybe kind of like our local gathering, but uh, a little bit different. It was a very common practice for rabbis to travel to different synagogues. So Jesus being a rabbi, it would, have been, it would have been that abnormal for Jesus to enter through this synagogue in Capernaum and then begin teaching. But what's amazingly different and what's a little abnormal is what is being taught. And specifically, who is the one being, who is the one teaching? Let's look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. 
So as Jesus, as he opens the Old Testament scriptures and begins to expound them, as he begins to teach them, the only response that those who were in the synagogue was to be amazed, was to be astonished by the teachings of Jesus. We may call it today like Jesus called in a way where it just turned the light bulb on, right? Like it just clicked. It began to click for those who were in the synagogue. Uh, maybe to use this as an as an analogy, when uh, if you didn't know this about me, I am really bad with words and grammar, and that's just who I am. And probably some of you this morning just said amen, but that's just who I am. Uh, so when Mandy and I started dating early on, uh, we were at college, and uh, I would always ask her like, Hey, Mandy, you want to go to the library tonight? Let's go to the library. Let's go study at the library. Hey, you need to go to the library. I need to check books out. Like, hey, will you meet me at the library today? She let me do this about three or four times, and then Mandy, with her sweet eyes, just looked over at me one time and said, hey, did you know that library has two R's in it? It's library. And I was blown away. I, I spent my entire life looking like a fool, saying, I'm going to the library today to check out some books, and they're like, well, check out a dictionary while you're at it. Right? Like, that, that was me. It, it maybe just like clicked the light bulb for me, so now she's like my walking grammar person that I need in my life to help keep clicking the light bulb. And, and I think we all had those moments where we went our entire life thinking and assuming we knew something right to be true, and then somebody just nonchalantly comes in and says, it's not really right. So can you imagine here, you got all these people in the synagogue that just been sitting there hearing teachings for their entire lives, mainly probably since they were 13-year-old boys. And then now Jesus enters into the scene, he's entered into the synagogue, and they're like, oh my goodness, what is this teaching? What is this teaching that he is doing? See, typically when the scribes or rabbis taught, they would just quote other scribes. There's really no authority. It's like quoting the next person and, and going off what he said and she said. But then when Jesus entered the scene, he's not quoting other, uh, other scribes. I think it's quite interesting in the Gospel of John, if you remember in John 1, 14, when it says, the word became flesh. When Jesus spoke, he is the word. Jesus is the total message of God. So when he speaks, he speaks in a way that points to him as the Messiah King, which all of Scripture is doing. So when he speaks, it was great authority. One thing I just love, I, I just love it how Mark is trying to play this out for us. Because notice Mark never tells us what Jesus is actually teaching. I mean, wouldn't it have been kind of cool? Like, what was Jesus teaching here? I mean, I'm sure whatever it was, it was very cool, very amazing, and mind-blowing. But that is not the point. The point of this, and what Mark is trying to help us to see, is not about the content of what's being taught, but the one who is doing the teaching. The point is about Jesus and his authority when he teaches. His authority about his word. Everything is about Jesus. And that, that right there is such an important concept for us to hold on to. 
Over the last many years in our culture, there's been this movement that begins to take place called the self-help movement. Uh, you may have seen uh, that language before as you're checking out your groceries, as you're at the grocery store, at a convenience store, on the magazine, like the self-help movement. A couple dangers about the self-help movement is that one, it removes God out of the equation and it can remove prayer out of the equation. But the biggest fallacy among all of them, removing God and removing prayer, is that it assumes that you can help yourself. The self-help movement just assumes you can eventually figure it out. And my fear is how often do we take God's word, we open up the Bible, say in the morning with our coffee or late at night, and we open it up for the mere fact of like, God, how is this going to help me? How is this going to self help me and we list five ways to be a better me by following all the rules of the bible but if i can encourage us in any way this week as we open up our bible open up with new eyes for when we read the gospel it's not about a self-help book if anything the bible exposes we can't help ourselves for when we read the gospel we read it seeing the power of the cross. We read the gospel not to find seven ways to be a better me, but we read the gospel to be captivated by Jesus, to be captivated by his work, not our work. So when you open up the Bible this week, church, I encourage you to loosen up your grip of control and begin to cling to the cross. It is Christ and his word that is authority and that will bring life. That was what those who were in the synagogue were getting. They were hearing the truth to hold on to the Messiah, to hold on to the King, and let go of your own control. And here we see Jesus display his authority when he teaches, but not only that, it, almost an interruption enters the scene. Let's look at our second point. A cosmic authority. Cosmic authority. So if Mark, if the major theme or one of the major themes of the book of Mark is to show that Jesus is truly the Savior, truly the Messiah King, Jesus must show that he has the authority to dethrone this current ruler of the world, which is Satan. Throughout the Bible, Satan is given, given many different titles. Just in the New Testament, we get in Ephesians 2.2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In John 12.31, Satan is given the title, the ruler of this world. Paul will even go on in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, which has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So, so for Jesus to truly say that I am king, he must have the authority to dethrone Satan. And that's what Mark is going to show us. See, the need for us as humans is twofold. We've heard this before. The first need that we have is a need for our sins to be forgiven, a sacrifice for our sin. 
We need someone to pay that substitute, to pay that penalty of death. But then secondly, the second need that we need as humans is someone to break the shackles and defeat Satan and his demons. And then just one act on the cross, Jesus will do both. He will die for the sins who are his. And then three days later, gloriously resurrect, breaking the shackle of death. That's why we get verses, oh death, where is your sting? For Jesus has conquered it and defeated it. And one of the interesting things is that we actually get a sense that demons recognize Jesus and his authority and his ability to shatter those domain of darkness. Look at verse 23 and 24 with me. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So here, Jesus is teaching, right? All eyes are on Jesus. He's great authority. People are marveled. People are being astonished. And all of a sudden, a man walks in with an unclean spirit. Now, clearly, this will be a scene. People are now watching and looking at this man with an unclean spirit. And then what's so interesting is that this demon feels obligated to begin to have a dialogue with Jesus. But notice in this demon's dialogue, in his conversation as he's speaking to Jesus, it's not, it's not much like he has a lot of pride. But actually, it seems as if this demon is in fear. It, it seems as if this demon is shuddering as he is in the presence of Jesus. Why could that be? Now, one reason why the demon is in fear before the authority of Jesus is what we just talked about. It is his word. Jesus and his word is truth. It is light. And Jesus and his word gives life. But the words of Satan, the words of, uh, of demons, usher in lies and darkness. Because, church, what is the one thing that can unravel any lie? The truth. If you want to take down a lie, you bring the truth. See, there's a reason when Jesus said in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. Because Jesus and his truth will ultimately expose the lies of Satan. See, since Genesis 3... Satan has been building his kingdom. Because if you remember in the garden, Satan started out with a lie. For he told Eve and told Adam, like, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely be like God. Started out with a lie and is continually building on a lie. His kingdom, Satan's kingdom, is built on a throne of lies. And it is just the single truth of Jesus and his word. That will shatter it all. 
No lie of Satan will ever compromise the truth of God. Jesus displays his authority by his words, where he is truth. Not only does Christ have this truth and unravels the lies of Satan, but also see what a reason why Satan or these demons have a fear of Jesus is because of his judgment. They recognize Jesus can enact judgment upon them. Notice, right? Like he says, have you, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? He, he didn't say this demon that was possessing this man. He didn't say, Jesus, have you come to destroy me, this single little demon in Capernaum? He said, Jesus, have you come to destroy us? The entire network of the demonic structure. It's like the demon knew that Jesus had the judgment and the ability to not just cast him out and destroy him, but all of us. The reason why we know that to be true is because of the title this demon gives Jesus. There, you see, he gives him the title because you are the Holy One of God. Demons, they know God to be holy. They experience God's holiness before when they oppose God's holiness, God's cast them out of his presence. And now, as Jesus and these demons are in front of the Holy Son of God, Jesus will cast them out and bound them up for an eternity in the lake of fire. For they have experienced the judgment of God once, and they will forever experience the judgment of God's Son. As we read a second ago, as Mary read in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Church, all of heaven and all of earth will be in the glory of God where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as king. But the question for us this morning, will we face the holiness of God by the blood-covered lamb? Or we face the holiness of God by our works. And in one powerful command, Jesus says in verse 25, Jesus rebukes him, saying, Be silent! Come out of him. And, and to, to put it in, in a different way, what Jesus is saying, Jesus is just saying to this demon, Shut it! I, I had enough of you, demon. Stop talking, be quiet, and leave. Head up to here with you. You are done. And then in that final protest, in verse 26, the demon is causing the man to convulse and crying out and screaming out in loud voices. But at the end of the day, the demon must obey Christ. Jesus wasn't playing any kind of games. He wasn't dancing around as if he was some kind of shaman, splashing holy water on this person, adding chains and necklaces and having instances. It was simply the word of Jesus that caused this demon to obey and to flee. This recording of demonic activity is really very rarely mentioned in the Bible. Uh, really, as we go through the Old Testament, very, very rarely do you see demonic oppression like this. 
Even in early church history, you see very, very few of demonic possessions such as this. But when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems like every other page we're reading about someone being possessed. Someone having some kind of demonic uh, uh, possession. Well, why could this be? Jesus kind of gives a little bit of inkling into that. In Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God, this is a metaphor, the finger of God is the Holy Spirit, so, but if it is by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit, that I cast out demons, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Every time we see Jesus display authority over demons, it is pointing to the reality that the kingdom of God is having authority over the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness does not stand a chance against the kingdom of God. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we shouldn't worry about spiritual warfare? Does that mean that we shouldn't worry about demons? Uh, by no means, church. That's not what I'm trying to say. I mean, even Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the spirits, the forces of evil. Church, there is an onslaught every day for your soul, whether you realize it or not. In the popular fable, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Red, she's on her way to Grandma's house, right? She has to back to the Christmas. And she gets to Grandma's house, and she gets into Grandma's room, and she has her cookies, and she looks over at Grandma, and she's like, Grandma, what, what, what big ears you got? Grandma, what, what furry skin you have? Grandma, what big eyes you have? Grandma, what, what big teeth you have? Just because the wolf was disguised in Grandma's clothing didn't make the wolf any less than the wolf. See, Little Red Riding Hood, she was vigilant. She knew something was off with Grandma. She recognized the differences, but she still got too close to the wolf. See, one thing about Red and this babe, I think it's quite interesting, is that she's alone. She didn't have Mom. She didn't have dad behind her say, hey, that's a wolf, stay away. It was just her and her innocence. The church, Satan is constantly disguising sin as if it is some kind of gold or diamond. But despite how admirable Satan makes sin look, it is still filthy to its core. And it will eternally separate you from a holy and loving God. But the difference between the fable of Little Red Riding Hood and us is that unlike Red who was alone, we have had a warrior king who has gone before us, who has defeated Satan and who has defeated his domain. Where through Christ the shackles of sin has been broken. So as we think about this idea of spiritual warfare, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. Every battle against sin 
every doubt against the Bible's teaching. Yeah, have you ever been like in a season of life and you're just on fire for God? You're hungry in the Word. You're praying every day. You see ministry at work or in your neighborhood. And then like an 18-wheeler, you get knocked down. Like, what's going on? Spiritual warfare. And not some coincidence. There is an onslaught in your soul, but we get to take hope and hold fast to the king who is greater than the demons, who is greater than the than Satan. We get to hold fast to Christ, who is the ruler over all. I think as we end this scene in the synagogue, we see Christ. And his power, his word, and his authority over this demon in verse 27 says, they will all know. Church, is that you? Do you become so amazed at Christ when you look into his word? When you see God work in your life or family or in your neighborhood, are you amazed at what God is doing? They say, what is this in your teaching? He even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. So, so here in this synagogue, we, we see Jesus displays authority when he teaches and with his words and his authority over demons. But, but what's so interesting, despite the immense amount of authority, the compassion that Jesus has. So we're going to point this morning a compassionate authority. Authority. I want to start start off. So if you can ask Jesus any question, what question would you ask? You've got the whole game to ask Jesus one question. I think there's a question that a lot of us would ask, but it exposes a lot of our weaknesses, exposes our vulnerability. And I think we've all wrestled with this question, and maybe some of us this morning have wrestled with this question. Have you ever questioned to yourself, or would you ever ask Jesus, Jesus, have you forgotten about me? Jesus, do you, do you care? Do you still care about me? Or have I just kind of fallen through the cracks? Because right? you, know, you look out, Maybe people here at church or in your neighborhood or our missional community, and you're like, man, it just seems like, it seems like Jesus is just blessing them. It just seems like they're growing. Has Jesus forgotten about me? Typically, when we think of someone with great authority, that person is inapproachable. Right? Like, none of us in this room is just going to casually have coffee with President Biden. He has way too much uh, security around him. Like, I'm sure you have to write a few letters to make that happen. But as we think about Jesus and his authority, the immense amount of authority that he displays, but yet he is still compassionate and searches for the broken hearted. Look at verses 29 and 31 with me. So this is all in the same day of ministry. So Jesus, his disciples, they leave the synagogue and they go to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law is laying ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. 
and came back and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began serving. So, so this this is the section right after Jesus just had this amazing moment when he came back. It, it, it honestly feels a little out of place. Right? Like, what just happened in the synagogue is one of those momentum starters. Like, Jesus just displayed authority when he teaches. He just displayed that he has authority over demons. So you think now Jesus is like, all right, Jesus, let's buckle in. Let's start your ministry. Let's start going into the world and conquering it. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let's go to the fisherman's house. Let's go to Simon and Andrew's house. That, that's where we're going. In the most beautiful way, with Jesus going to Simon and Andrew's house, you really see the heart of Jesus. You really see that, that those who Jesus loves and cares for will not fall through the cross. Because as Jesus enters into Simon's house, he sees Simon's mother-in-law laying there on a bed with a fever. Jesus was willing enough to slow down, compassionately go to her, and sit with her, take her by the hand, and just slowly and graciously lift her up as he lifts the fever off of her. Notice how Mark is doing a very similar thing as he did in the early part of our passage. See, Mark is not talking much about Simon's mother-in-law's illness. All we know is she has a fever. We don't know how long. We don't know any other symptoms. But again, that is not Mark's point. Mark's point is to see, or for us to see, that Jesus is the sufficient healer who has authority over sickness. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He healed her. I don't know about you, but if you ever had a fever, a fever just wipes me out. Like, I'm a very bad sick person. Like, if I'm sick, I'm sick. I can't handle being sick. Usually when my fever breaks, it takes me like two or three days for that to kind of get back to 100%. And maybe, maybe you are similar to that. But did you notice the little detail marked here? That she began to serve them. Jesus healed her and then brought not just healing, but vitality. To her. He brought life back to her. So much so that she was joyfully and willingly wanting to submit herself to the authority of Jesus and begin to serve and worship him. Church, would that be your response to Christ? That when you are in your lowest that when you do feel as if you may have fallen through the cracks of the Savior's arms, will you be reminded that Jesus has graciously come beside your bedside at your low? You get that image as he holds your hand, as he holds the mother-in-law's hand and lifts it her up. Your Christ will do the same for you and for me. Those who are his, he will always be Our Savior cares. So does that push us to a heart of worship? 
knowing that our Savior cares for us even in our lowest, that he comes beside us, does that bring us to want to serve him? As it did Peter and Simon's mother-in-law. So this miracle takes place. And the next event, we just get this big scene. The crowd is flocking to this house, just trying to touch the Savior, just trying to find Jesus, right? It says that all who were sick or oppressed by demons gathered together at the door. You get the scene, and your people are pushing and shoving, like, could this be? Who is this man with authority? And I think when our time is this morning, there's one detail they want to skip over. With all the hoopla that they offer, there was only one group that truly identified Jesus. Look at Mark 1 34. Do not prevent the demon to speak because they knew him. The demon in the synagogue knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God. All the demons that Jesus casted out to those who were being brought to him knew that Jesus was the Son of God. But you know who missed it was the scribes. Those who were hearing the teaching missed it. The flock and the crowd that gathered at Simon and Andrew's house, they missed it. And my fear is, church, how many of us will wake up and came to church today, we can go to missional community this week, we'll open up our Bibles, we'll listen to every Christian song on the radio, but we will still miss Jesus. Jesus later on will rebuke the crowd, saying, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. They were not there for Jesus. Later on in the Gospels, for he was the Son of God. They missed it. They missed that Jesus is the Holy Son of God. So the question for us this morning is how do we not miss Christ? When we are being bombarded with, with news and culture and flaming arrows, how do we not miss Christ? And the answer is quite simple. The answer is to look at the cross. Church, the more we marvel at the cross, the more we see the ugliness of our sin, and the more we'll see the need of our Savior. Do you marvel at the cross daily? Or do you see Christ, the Son of God, slain for you and for me? Church, Christ is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be glorified. He is worthy of our hearts. Jesus is the King who willingly laid down his life for you and me. The question that we have this morning, are you, how are you going to respond? Are you going to joyfully submit and respond to the authority, life-giving word of Jesus this morning? Are you still going to keep trying to figure it out? And then, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and the reminder that Jesus has all. That nothing on heaven or nothing on earth or nor nothing in hell will ever dethrone Christ on his throne. So, Father, I pray that we find great hope and great joy in the authority of Christ this morning. In your son's name we pray.
Amen.